Please get out your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Tonight we're going to be doing an overview of the book of 1 Peter. Um, Whenever we look at the different books of the Bible, they all have different messages that are intended by the author. And when, as we get into these New Testament letters, we start to see that intention as we kind of do this big overview of the book. Uh, and that really helps us to understand all the different parts and all the different sections inside of the book so that whenever we open it to study a particular verse, uh, everything starts to fit together in that big puzzle that, that, the, that makes up the whole of the letter. This, morning, this evening we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. As we look at it, what we see is that this is a book that is written for people who are suffering. Uh, people who are going through trials. People who are going through difficulties in their lives. Uh, very much like James. Remember James last week we looked at, and they were going through different trials in their, li- in, in their lives. And James writes to those people and tells them how to approach their trials and how to grow from their trials specifically. Well, Peter has a slightly different way of looking at suffering, and, and, and his message is extremely valuable for us today, is maybe some of us are struggling with uh, dealing with the rejection of the world to our message. The things that we try to tell people, the things we try to show people, is not very well received uh, to those around us, they like to believe in uh, kind of a fairy tale gospel or a fairy tale way of life or secularism or materialism or all kinds of other things. And anything that we say that opposes their view is just completely rejected. So, how do we deal with all that rejection? And how do we understand uh, what, what Peter's writing to us about that rejection? What is he really trying to say to us? Let's start by reading the first two verses of 1 Peter, and then we're going to skip to the very end, and we're going to kind of see what the message is of the whole book, and then we're going to kind of fill in all the middle. So to begin with, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice as he begins his letter, this is the Apostle Peter. This is the Peter who spent three and a half years alongside Jesus, learning about Jesus, learning from Jesus about God and the, the way of the kingdom. And, and these are the way, this is the way he describes his audience. He says, to, the, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, why does he call them that? You know, we, we kind of noticed with James that he talks about the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And now he talks about the elect exiles of the, dis, of the dispersion. Well, obviously being elect is a good thing. That is, those who are chosen by God, they are elected by God. We kind of looked at that with Romans 10 uh, last Sunday morning and saw how God has chosen, based on the criteria of faith, those who would be saved. And, and so he's writing to those who are saved by God's grace through that obedient faith and trusting in him. But he doesn't just call them elect. He calls them elect 
exiles. So not only are they chosen, but they are also rejected. They're chosen by God, but they're rejected by the world. It's kind of this uh, oxymoron between the two things, that, that they are loved and chosen by God, but the world sees them as rejected, that they are cast out. The idea of being an exile is being cast out of their home country. Imagine being forced to live in India or in China or somewhere like that. Imagine feeling completely out of place and out of your culture and out of what, what is normal to you and out of what makes sense. And this is essentially the way that he refers to those who are believers, that they are chosen by God, but at the same time, they're dealing with the fact that they're living in a world that is not their home, a world that is not uh, allowing them, accepting them as they are, but is trying to reject them and refuse them all along. So let's go to the end of the book now, chapter 5. Notice the last words in verses 12 through 14. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Silvanus is the one who has been writing, and Peter has just been orating. This is a common practice at that time. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, as we read the very ending of this book, you notice the way that he talks about what he's just written. That he has been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So all the things that he's been writing in this book is described by Peter as an understanding of the true grace of God toward these Christians, toward those of us who are elect exiles. So what is in this book? What does this book describe to us? And why does he come to this ending and say, this is all the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. And why does he say, she who is at Babylon, what Babylon doesn't even exist anymore. Well, we see in the introduction and in the end an idea that that Peter wants to let permeate throughout this entire letter. This is a good letter to read and study while you're studying books like Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. People who were Israelites who have been cast out of their home country and forced to live in a foreign land of Babylon... And that's, that's a, a large section of the Old Testament history. And, and so whenever we look at this, we see he is writing to Christians as though they live in this foreign land, surrounded by people who are not like them, and, and that they're feeling the rejection of those around them. And that is actually going to be the majority of what this letter is about. How do we live in a foreign land uh, and, and get through life? And, and is this really a graceful thing? He says, this is the true grace of God. Is there something else in here that, that is a good thing and, and this rejection thing is kind of just something that we live with? I mean, that's kind of the way that we often view, uh, you know, that this is uh, the rejection and everything. That's just stuff we have to live with. That's just part of this life that we wish wasn't real. We wish that we got out of baptism and then we walked into a life where everyone accepted 
accepted us for our beliefs and everything was good and everybody believed what we believed or that God would allow us to not suffer and he'd just take us up to heaven to be with him for all eternity. That's, that's the two options that we want to choose from to be happy. But, but we're not seeing either of those in our lives. And Peter recognizes that and so he writes this letter to help us to make sense of why we are suffering rejection and why it's a good thing. Why this is the true grace of God. To suffer rejection, to live as exiles in Babylon, uh, outside of our homeland, and to suffer in this way. So that's the whole book, trying to condense it as much as I can, just from a big picture understanding. Let's get into some of the details. Go back to chapter 1. The first uh, few verses, notice verses 3 through 12, are, are extremely encouraging verses. This is actually pointing us to the grace of God, but it's got some more information in there than just talking about the grace of God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love this text. This is probably way on up there on my list of favorite texts in the Bible because the way that he speaks about our salvation is is intended to provoke us to, to, to be mesmerized, to be blown away by the grace of God. Notice the very beginning, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us this mercy and caused us to be born again, given us new birth. And, and given us a living hope. This is the God that we serve. A God who has shown us great mercy and grace. That He's allowed us to be born again. That He's allowed us to be made new. And to be forgiven of all our previous sins. And not only that, but He's provided for us a hope of an inheritance that is imperishable. I mean, it's just a description of all these blessings that have been given to us. And now Peter turns and says, blessed be the God who has given all these things to us. And he says, in this you rejoice, verse 6. Though for now, for a little while, you're tested by trials. But notice the way he talks about those trials. Those trials that grieve us so much are good for us. That those, t- those trials are helping to develop our faith and, and helping us to obtain something that's amazing. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Read that again. Think about that a little bit. Let that soak in. The genuineness of our faith is being tested so that in the end it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, whenever I read that, I thought... ESV has to mess that up. i got to reread that in a different version and a different version and a different version to make sure I'm reading this right. Because what he's telling us is that the tested genuineness of our faith is resulting in praise, glory, and honor for who? Me? That's what I thought. No. It's saying may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our faith that has come through these trials will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's glory for us. Now we look at that and we think, no way. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve praise, glory, and honor. But the whole point of him talking about the faith and and enduring the trials and and growing out of it is that it's going to be found in the end to result in praise, glory, and honor for us when Jesus returns. This is the true grace of God. That by going through the trials of rejection in this life as elect exiles... We are, we are having our faith tested and we're coming out of the fire with a hope that God is going to give us praise, glory, and honor when this life is over. He's going to let His glory, His, His praise be shared with us. That we have immortal beings praising us, that we are glorified. And I'll speak of these things and I'm, I'm blown away by this and I'm, I'm struggling with it. Like, really, this is possible? Really? But that seems as though that's exactly what he's saying, especially as we continue to study this book. That is essentially the outline of the book. The grace is being seen, and then our faith is resulting in glory. Grace, faith, glory, grace, love, glory is the title of the sermon. So all of this is intended to just blow our minds, to make us think, really, we're we're given that much grace in our sufferings? Like this is an opportunity for us to to glorify God, but to receive glory for ourselves. And this is why we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Now we might think about salvation as just being You know, I'm so excited that I don't have to suffer in hell for all eternity, right? I'm I'm happy about that, absolutely. But Peter goes beyond that and tells us we've got an inheritance waiting for us that is imperishable, and we've got glory and praise and honor if we remain faithful in enduring through those trials of life and suffering that rejection. So we can rejoice in our trials because we receive what we don't deserve. 
This is about understanding the promises of God that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. In fact, uh, in verses 10 through uh, verse 12, you see him referring to those Old Testament promises of the prophets who were, who were inquiring and searching like, how is this going to happen? You know, when is this going to happen? And all that God would tell him is all these promises are, are being written down and, he, and they are serving us today. Again, be blown away by the promises that God is offering to each of us. In the next section, he transitions in verse 13 to talk about, after he talks about all the grace that has been given to us, he starts to talk about what we ought to do in response to this wonderful grace that God has given to us. In verses 13 uh, through 21, we start to see him talk about uh, the, the purpose behind our lives and what, the, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He just talked about the grace, the gift that will be brought to us when Jesus comes. And now he says, set your hope fully on it. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. With all this salvation and promised blessings that we have, now he says, prepare your minds for action. There are things that we must do because of the great blessing of inheritance and grace that God has bestowed upon us. And what must we do? How must we respond? Well, as obedient children, we must not be conformed to the former passions of life. What are those passions? We'll get to that. But instead, as he who called you is holy... We must be holy. This first little section here, he talks about holiness and preparing us to understand that the response to the grace that has been given to us, that we have a hope of receiving praise, glory, and honor, that we have a hope of being in heaven with God is we pursue holiness. What does that mean? Well, he goes into a description of holiness, talking about Jesus, how Jesus has come and how he is holy. And the picture is that we are set apart. We are different from everybody else. We are exiles. We, this world is not our home. Very much the idea here that, that we are in a different world, that we live different lives than everyone else around us. We are holy in our conduct. And why? Why do we make this change? Well, verse 22, he says, having purified your soul, by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You see more of that purpose. Be holy, and he says, and, and have love for your brethren. Show love in all your conduct. Uh, live earnestly, love earnestly uh, with a pure heart toward one another. And, and all of this is, is rolling together, and it's just building. So holiness, love, uh, what is uh, abstaining from those passions, and the former passions, what passions were they talking about? Well, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, we might think about passions as being, you know, sexual morality or, or covetousness or things like that, but the passions specifically have to do with loving other people. He said to love other people, and then he talks about malice. That's thinking evil thoughts and wanting evil things for other people. And then he talks about deceit and deceiving people. Hypocrisy, which is very much like deceit. Being something that's different than what you say. Speaking one thing and doing another. And, and envy, wanting what someone else has. And slander, speaking out against people. These are all passions that are inside of us that we must abstain from. We must get rid of. Look at verse 11. Brothers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's those, that phrase again, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter talks about these sins, malice, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, as the passions that are of the flesh that are waging war against our soul, that are, that are causing us to, to turn back to an old way of life instead of embracing the new way of life as elect exiles, as sojourners and, and strangers in a foreign land. Instead of living as God and as Christ want us to live, we have a desire to pursue earthly ways in our interactions with other people. And that's not loving. And that's really what it's all about. We need to be holy by putting away our passions in order to love other people as we ought to. Uh, verses, verses, verse 11 leads into verse 12 where he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, he points to that. Put away all those passions and those desires to do things that are dishonorable and do what is honorable to those who are around you so that even though they reject you and they speak against you as evildoers, they're going to see the good deeds and they're going to turn their hearts to glorify God because you have shown them the love that God wants to, to show them. You were helping them to see the love of God. And this, this sparks a section of the book where he talks about showing love to those who are over us in authority. And, and submitting to the authority of the government. Submitting to the authority of our, our employer, our master. Submitting to the authority of our husbands. And, and if we're husbands, then we need to live in a way that is uh, understanding and showing honor, you know, in a loving way toward our spouse. That by being holy and getting rid of the passions, remember passions, malice, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all these passions of, of hating our brother and being mean toward our brother or our sister. By putting those things away, we are now showing love to these people, that they might see our good deeds, our good conduct, that they might turn and, and become worshipers of God, that glorify God. And this is what he wants to provoke his readers to do, to put aside all of their own desires and all of the, their own passions, and instead of retaliating when they do evil against us, which is what we talked about this morning, they are submitting to those who are evil, not resisting them, but submitting to them and trying to do what is good and right for them to see love in our hearts toward them. 
This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be so devoted to him that we are letting his light shine. Look at the end of the section, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love good life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Notice these same passions are brought up again. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. By, by getting rid of those passions and showing love and not returning evil for evil, but showing love toward those who do evil to us, we are now putting our, our, ourselves in a position where we can love life and see good days and where the eyes of the Lord are on us and His ears are open to our prayers. But if we choose to deceive and to, to have malice and hatred for our brother rather than show them love and suffer for them, then the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is our choice. We either choose to, to serve ourselves or we choose to serve others. And if we choose to serve ourselves only, we're not loving our neighbor as we ought to. This is a very evangelistic book. This book is all about going out and living the life that, that Christ calls us to live. He says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The end of this long list of things that we're to do, to be holy, to, to, to have love, to abstain from those passions, to submit to evil people, is, is a, dec a decree, a desire that we are to be people who have no fear of those who reject us, no fear of those who are evil toward us, but we honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. Think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Christ is Lord of my heart. That means all those bad thoughts, those, those evil intentions, that hatred towards somebody else is not allowed to be the Lord of my heart. It's not allowed to decide how I'm going to live and how I'm going to act. I, I, I've got Christ as the Lord of my heart, so those things need to get out in order to make room for my love and my devotion to him. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sins. This is something I talked about with that book, I-am-in. I love that book. It's amazing. But what you see in that is these people who are willing to suffer for Christ 
are willing to do anything. <laughs> After they go through that suffering, maybe before that suffering, one of these guys was uh, in, in Egypt before the revolution happened, and he basically stated he's a Christian before that, but after that happened and he suffered great persecution, he realized he was not really being faithful. He was actually just living for himself. And then he endured extreme suffering and, and he refused to give in and to confess Islam. And he refused to say that Jesus is not real, that Jesus is not Lord. And after he got out of that, he, his heart was all the more faithful, all the more pure, all the more desiring to obey the will of God no matter what. Because this is what suffering does for us. It helps us to get past our sins, to see the value of, of what is ahead, rather than trying to obtain as much as we can living in the here and the now. Verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Remember, he's been talking about the revelation of Jesus, Jesus returning. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember, the Lord does not listen to the prayers of those who are just self-seeking. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever we do is, is attempting to show love to other people that overall the mission is completed, that God is glorified. Obviously, the desire for us is that God be glorified, not that we be glorified, but that God be glorified. But if we're willing to endure all of this suffering, the next section tells us once again, we get to share in Christ's suffering, in Christ's glory. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. It's going right back to chapter 1. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Hmm. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Notice the spirit of glory rests on you. You share in the sufferings of Christ and you can rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice in the trials of this life. Why? Because we share in the sufferings of Christ. And that's our desire. Our, our goal in suffering is not to suffer so that we suffer. If at all costs, I want to avoid suffering, honestly. I don't want to suffer, and I don't want anybody here to suffer. But if reaching out to a lost world and living as an exile and trying to help lead other people to the hope of salvation that we have is, is going to lead to suffering... I have to be willing to accept that. This is probably one of the hardest things that we do living where we live in the society that we live in. He finishes the book uh, with exhortations to the elders in chapter 5 
encouraging them to set the example, to go forward, to, to press on, to allow themselves to be rejected, to, to serve the flock, to lead people, uh, and, and to receive the crown of glory when this life is over for their efforts. And then he exhorts everyone to walk in humility, to resist the devil, and to rely on God with everything that they do. Look at verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the true grace of God. If we endure to the end, we have hope of sharing in the glory that God is going to reveal to us in Christ whenever He returns for all eternity. It will be given to us. We will experience it. We will enjoy it. We will, we will find the praise, the glory, and the honor that God desires to give to us. So, as we read through this book, kind of summarizing it as a whole, he says this is the true grace of God to be an exile who is rejected. Uh, that means that we have the opportunity to let the world around us see the love of Christ living in us. And that's our desire, that's our goal, is to share in Christ's sufferings, to let others see the love of Christ for them as we live like Christ lives. So we have to ask ourselves, is, is Christ the Lord of our hearts? Are we pursuing the passions of our lives? Are we, are we pursuing hatred and despising our neighbor? Or are we willing to share the gospel with them? Are we willing to open up to them and to, to help them along the way when that opportunity provides itself? That means we have to step out of our comfort zones. We have to put ourselves to death. We have to carry a cross in this life. That, that means that whenever we know that mentioning spiritual things will often lead to ridicule or mockery or, or things of that nature, we say it anyway. We let the truth be known to those around us that they might live. And if you're like me, that's not an easy thing to do. It was really easy the first few years until I met a bunch of resistance, and then it became really hard. So I want to close with one more thing, and it's some of the texts that I've kind of skipped and I'm not going to read them all, but this is an idea that permeates this letter that encourages us to overcome whatever's holding us back, to overcome the, the fear of rejection. Peter tells us to think about Christ. Christ was very holy as he lived in heaven. He was set apart. He was, he was completely different from anything we'd ever experienced, enjoying all the glory of heaven, and he came to earth and he lived around us and endured the rejection of men. And he was rejected like a, a stone. A living stone is like a cornerstone that's just rejected. It's not good enough. He was rejected, even though he was the perfect cornerstone. He was rejected, and he chose to live his life with love for those who rejected them. He didn't respond to evil with evil. Instead, he responded to evil with love. And he constantly was entrusting himself to God as he is being put to death. He entrusted himself to God. He died for us. He went through the worst, most excruciating form of suffering 
that we might be saved from our sins. And after he went through all of that for us, he received the glory that we might share in as his brothers, as fellow heirs of of the grace that he is bestowing upon us, as those who have an inheritance that we're waiting for. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is interesting. I'd like to to close thinking about verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Think about all the things that are in that text. First of all, he's an elder, okay, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Think about what Peter witnessed in his life, of the way Jesus was treated. Think about being there at the trial, standing outside, and apparently he got to see Jesus. After he had denied him three times, Jesus looks up at him. Here here Peter is, witnessing firsthand the suffering of Jesus for him. And he has just spent time denying that he knows Jesus to avoid suffering. Do we relate? Do you feel that? The, The shame? That we see Christ suffering, we understand it, we, we know it, we've studied it, and that we have not shared it for fear that we would suffer. But here's Peter writing a letter to encourage those of us who are failing to suffer for the cause of Christ, to suffer to show others to Christ. And he is, he is now, you read it, a partaker in the glory is going to be revealed. Peter is suffering now. He's not denying the Lord. He's not living his life for himself. He's not avoiding the suffering. He's glorifying Christ with the way he lives. In my mind, that is the strongest message of this book. It's the most amazing. That's most encouraging to me. To get past myself, to stop thinking about all the failed mistakes that I've had in the past where I've not been willing to suffer, been willing to be rejected, and to start thinking about what I'm going to do now. To show that I love Christ, that He is the Lord of my heart, and that I want to do His will. If there's anybody here this evening that needs to obey the gospel and receive the grace that God freely bestows upon you, we want to help you in any way we can. Please, if if you have need, come as we stand and sing.